I imagine that most, if not all of us, have heard about people employing the services of different kinds of coaches, whether it's a sports coach, an executive business coach, a relationship coach. We all know coaches exist. But did you know that there were play coaches, someone who will help you help your child at school, on the playground, in your neighborhood, in your child's life. Hello, everyone. I'm Pamela Brewer, welcoming you to this edition of Mind Talk and welcoming you to and introducing you to today's guest, Carolyn McGuire, Caroline, I believe, McGuire, who is the author of Why Will No One Play With Me? Caroline, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Now, I, I have to tell you that I noted as I was taking a look at why will no one play with me that one of the uh, people who reviewed your book is Ned Holloway, who is quite well known and quite well respected uh, as he does his work with the ADHD community. So I want to say congratulations. That was really pretty cool. Thank you so much. Ned is actually a longtime supporter and friend. I worked for him for a long time, and we've always stayed in touch. And um, I really have been tremendously lucky to have his advice. Um, and he is part of the reason that I pushed forward with this book, because he knew from being all over the world and being a person with, you know, touching as many lives as he does, that so many children – um, have social skills struggles and teens, and there's really, for many, many people, no resource out there that's very user-friendly for them. So um, it was a tremendous thing to have him on my side. Well, again, congratulations, because he really is quite well known and respected, as are you, I might add. You are a personal coach who works with children with ADHD and their families, and you also hold several designations. What are they? So um, the designations are from the International Coach Federation, and they just mean that I am a professional certified coach. I pass a series of exams, so it's called a PCC. And then also I have a master's degree in education where I focused on one of the bases of the book, which is executive functions, which are the sort of management system hub of the brain, the things that control things like self-regulation and attention and emotional regulation and um, those, are, those are the credentials that I have, and I've been doing this for 15 years. So I've seen hundreds and hundreds of kids um, of all ages and young adults, too. And so the methods are all based on not just research, but this practical experience that I have. At the very beginning of your book, Caroline, you introduce us to a child named Jonah whom you described as sweet but angry, and he would fly into rages over homework. And you, you talk about asking him a simple question, anticipating a simple answer. Maybe not what you actually got from Jonah. Tell us about Jonah. Yeah, so um, Jonah was the first one to bring this to my attention, but I, you know, it's a question that many parents have heard where I think I asked him something about reading logs, and he, he you know, I was wondering, like, what's up with the, the anger? You know, why do you get so angry? And I thought he was going to tell me what I had heard many times, which is why he thinks they're useless and doesn't need to do them. 
And instead, he basically told me, he kind of brushed it off. He said, I don't, I don't want to talk about that. What I want to know is why will no one play with me? And, you know, it, it was one of those questions that as an adult, you, you just are struck by because there was such a visceralness to it. Yes. But also, you know, having been a kid who was bullied and left out myself and having overcome that, I really understood why reading logs and academics are not what are on our kids' minds. You know, it's really more about the stuff that is affecting their lives. And he was the first, and then I kept hearing it. And that, that's one reason that this all came to be, is that it kept coming up. Um, and it comes up every day all around us. You, you talk about executive functioning so I want you to tell us, you, you just said a little bit about it a moment ago, but I want you to tell us a little bit more about what exactly executive functioning is and what bearing does it have on a child's ability to play? That's a great question. I love that. Um, so executive functions, if you picture our brain, is you know a bunch of different processes, executive functions are processes in the brain that come together and they drive things like self-regulation, attention, organization, planning, future thinking. So if your kid doesn't seem to ever think about the future, that all comes from executive function. And what ends up happening is as we mature, for some kids, they pick up and they develop really good planning and prioritizing, really good future thinking. They, they gain emotional control and they can manage their emotions rather than their emotions managing them. But for many kids, they have that as a weakness. And it's sort of um, not, not necessarily that you have it in every area, right? So you may have a kid who is so smart academically. They can do anything. So that planning and prioritizing piece, that is rocking. But the other piece, that emotional piece, that ability to, it affects your ability to pay attention to social cues, your ability to read the room and sort of pause and pay attention and say, oh, you know, I'm looking at this person and they seem upset, so I shouldn't barge over and tell them my good news. It's all those things. And for some kids, adults, you know, we all know that adult who we're thinking of right now who doesn't read the room. Um, the executive functions, this management system in the brain, is what drives all these behaviors, and it's, it's invisible. Um, so many times parents are baffled. We had a talk. I asked him to, you know, stop touching people. I asked him to play well with others. I asked him to share. And a lot of times kids really struggle with that, and it all has to do with whether that is um, something that they come to easily because if they come to it easily, when you correct them, you'll notice they change. But if they have weakness in executive function and then they go to the playground, they become too much. Or maybe they just sit and they're too little. And it just affects their behavior and their ability to play. You know, I, I know that there was a time where if a child was seen as not having the ability to to play um, or to interact well with other children, that child, it, the recommendation was that that child be left back so they could repeat a grade and perhaps somehow learn how to be more interactive with other children. What do you think of that approach to it? Well, the problem 
problem with that, and we didn't know as much then, right, is that if a child doesn't come to this naturally, they're not picking it up from the lessons around them, from the modeling around them of their parents and their peers, then time is not really the answer. It's really about the fact that they need direct instruction. And my, my analogy is this. Um, many kids pick up uh, sports very easily. You know, you, they see other people play, and they, they look, and they model, and they play soccer, and they pick it up. And there comes a point when we all need coaching, but a lot of kids just, they very naturally pick it up. And then some other kids don't, right? I resemble this remark. And so what happens is we can give them more time, but they really need someone to show them. And so with a lot of times parents think, I'll wait, or they used to leave kids back. But if you think about the people you know who are 40, 50, 60, there are adults who just don't get it. You know, I always joke like the uncle you avoid at Thanksgiving. And it's because they just didn't come to this naturally and they need that direct instruction to teach them how to do this, how to play, how to get along, how to read the room. Caroline McGuire, author of Why Will No One Play With Me? The Play Better Plan to Help Children of All Ages make friends, and thrive. We're going to take a break, and we will be right back to continue our conversation with Caroline. Caroline, the, the subtitle of your book, if you will, as you just heard me read, and you probably know already, says to help <laughs> children of all ages make friends and thrive. Is this a book that an adult might benefit from for his or herself, or is it really geared towards working with children? Well, it's interesting because I get this question a lot. It is really geared toward working with children, but... I have found that um, because there is nothing out there, right, for adults, and book two will be for adults, because I do work with adults as well, um, a lot of adults are actually um, ordering it, because what they want to figure out is, what do I do differently? And so, you know, part of the methodology is that the parent coaches the child and teaches them these skills, and also the book teaches parents how to have hard conversations right so I would say that if an adult um, is looking for that information about how social works and what's going on that is in the book right um, but but you know my hope is to then later come out with a book where, where adults can learn to adjust their social approach um, but I have heard a lot, I have a lot of grandmas come up to me and say that they want to buy the book for their children who are now adults. Um, uh, and I totally get it because we're looking for answers. So I'm going to make um, a request that when that book comes out, you come back and join us. Absolutely. I'd love to. Terrific. One of the points that you make in, in the book, and there are many that are really 
simply stated but powerfully stated. You make the comment uh, that many people don't realize that highly intelligent children who might have, first of all, that learning uh, disabled children can also be highly intelligent. And that seems to be something that sort of falls on deaf ears sometimes. You give the example that they can be quite competent in mathematics or music. It's just that the social piece is not their, their skill set. Exactly. Yes. You know, everyone is good at, at something. I really believe that. People have talents, different talents. But for some kids um, and teens, um, they are highly intelligent and they are really good at, at one aspect, but their brain does not make easy because of these executive functions, um, the social piece. Um, I also think, you know, we all do what's easiest for us. We favor it. And I think um, what happens is, you know, it's hard for them. And so a lot of times they sort of put it aside. Um, so I think that there, I've seen hundreds and hundreds of children who are absolutely either, you know, we can tell they're a genius from testing their IQ or you are just blown away by the things they can do. But they just don't have this piece where they are able to figure out how to get along with or even approach other children. Now, you know that some parents will blame themselves and they may or may not take it out on their children. You make the point, not necessarily in that context, but you make the point that it is important to remember if the child could, they would. It's not just that the child is being oppositional. Absolutely. You know, I think that children want to do well. They want to meet our expectations. But what ends up happening is, in many cases, children just don't know how. Um, I work with a lot of shy children who really want to do well, but they really literally just don't know how to get started. How do you turn to someone in class? It's, it's back to school time, right? Some kids can walk into a class and know no one and talk to whomever's there and other kids they just spin they don't know what to do so i think it's um it's really important for us to understand that kids are not trying to be difficult it's just hard for them the idea that a parent can talk to their child and can actually coach their child for some who are listening that might seem kind of daunting how, how does a parent begin to even conceptualize that they can take on the role of coaching their child without coming off as a helicopter parent yeah I mean I think that's a really important point um so here's a couple things we are already and many of you listening are already in the role of coaching your child just without a playbook right you are already, you know, your kid is getting off the bus and they are coming to talk to you about these things or you're watching them and you're realizing that they're making all these mistakes and you're trying to help them correct. Um, we are the original teachers, right? We are the, as parents, we are the ones who originally taught them. So I think parents can do this and the book really teaches them this coach approach so that instead of telling and nagging and sort of being overbearing in that sort of helicopter ilk, 
we are learning to be more like a professional and hold back and ask questions and understand that realizations come over time, not, not today. Um, so I would say that many parents ask me this question whenever I speak around the world, and a lot of times they're already spending hours and hours coaching their child. They're just not as effective because they don't know. They don't know how. Tell us, if you would, the story of Patrick. I was really fascinated by the way you were able to talk to him, essentially coach him, and things turned out so well for him. What, what's Patrick's story? So um, Patrick was someone that I had met several times, and I was invited to a barbecue with his extended family. And the minute I arrived, I got like a whole – um, a bunch of information, and everybody was sort of living in anticipation. There were all these cousins there, and they were gathered at this beach cottage, and everybody was sort of living the anticipation that whenever the movie went on, you know, sort of after the barbecue, that Patrick just had so much trouble choosing a movie. He kind of didn't get that the other kids were sending him signals, like, we don't want to have this go on for 80 years pick. <laughs> and he was, um, he was really struggling with the movie. And so there was this sort of ping pong effect where he would come up stairs to the adults. And so the minute I arrived, I started hearing the dread of this, this, this recurring pattern. And I started just thinking, you know, I was just curious, like, well, not why does he do this in an accusatory way, but like, what's, what's going on here? And so I asked permission. And this ended up in the book only because I told my editor and other people this story when we were, I was trying to explain, you know, how simple and yet beautiful coaching is. And I just, I asked permission and I went over and I talked to Patrick and I was able to just ask him basically, you know, what's going on here? And I asked him, I think, what, you know, he liked about movies he had seen a million times because that was the beef of the kids. Like, we cannot watch this movie again. He has to pick a new movie. And he started telling me about his anxiety, basically, and that if he'd watched a movie, he knew it was coming. He could sort of manage himself, and he didn't have to worry. And it was just so telling to me, and that's, I think, why my editor encouraged me to put the, the story in, because kids have reasons for the things that they do. But so often as adults, we don't ask. We kind of launch into other people don't like that. You have to let that go. When it comes time to pick the movie, just, you know, be quiet and go along. And we don't mean to, but it's our own anxiety. Yes. This seems so baffling. Everybody's mad at you. This is ruining the whole night. Can you please just go along? And so what ends up happening was I just asked him questions, and I asked him permission to brainstorm. And he was just so happy. You could tell and feel his relief. And we've ended up figuring out that he could watch those previews that they have of movies and he could see what the movie was about and he could pick one. We also went to Wikipedia where they have like the full, full, you know, <laughs> blow by blow of the movie. And it was amazing to me too, because it wasn't, it was, again, kids do well if they can, you know, if he could have made this happen easier, he would have, but he really was struggling. And a lot of times what parents are doing and, and why they, they think, well, I don't know if I can coach my kid, is that, that we're launching into problem solving when we don't know what's going on for the kid. And 
that's part of the methodology is to, instead of launching into what you need to do this year to be social or I'm telling you, you have to join this club, to stop and step back and go back to basics and ask, you know, I hear you objecting to joining any activities. You know, what's up with that? And to hear from the kid because they have reasons and, and Patrick had very good reasons. The idea, you know, so many kids will just sort of shrug their shoulders, so many adults will kind of shrug their shoulders and say, I don't know, no reason, whatever. And what you're making very clear is, is there's a reason. It may not be a reason that you as the adult have thought of, but there's absolutely a reason. And with Patrick, I mean, there was a clear logic for him to wanting to see the same movie and over and over again. Absolutely. And, and you know, I, I teach people in the book, some kids are monosyllabic, some kids shrug, some kids give you very little. And I give a lot of tips in the book about, well, what can you do as a parent? And one of the first things you can do is say, you just shrugged. What does that mean? You know, and if they have no answer, one of the things you can do is say, okay, does it mean you don't care? Does it mean you are fine with it? Give them a little buffet of options, not interrogating them, but allowing them sort of to pick a door. And often they'll be like, no, that's not it at all. And it kind of spurs them forward. You know, it's, it's, it's almost like I love the kids who argue with me because then I get all the information. But there's a lot of kids who shrug and don't give you a lot of information. And that's one of the things I hear from parents a lot. I want to do this, but I'm worried about this. So I'm going to give you everything. I'm going to give you how to handle that because it's very common. And, you know, we're going to go to a break in a second. But, but I just want to say, as I was going through the book, um, it, you know, the fact that you were able to actually give short, sweet, simple examples of what a parent can literally say not only would I imagine that that would be soothing to a parent because now they don't feel so clueless themselves but you show that it's really kind of easy to do and it really grows out of caring for your child absolutely I think again my goal has been to give parents the tools that professionals know so you have a way to respond to these challenges because um, it really isn't that hard to learn. And it's, it's really about sort of learning this mindset of instead of telling, we ask and we hold back a little bit. Caroline McGuire, author of Why Will No One Play With Me? We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Caroline, you offer a formula for moving from small talk to conversations. And I have to say, I know a lot of adults who cringe at the idea of small talk, will not go somewhere because they are fearful or anxious about their ability to engage in small talk. So how much more so would it be for a child? What is the formula for moving from small talk to conversation? 
So I'm glad you like that. Um, So one of the things that has come up a lot is that um, people who are introverted, people who are shy, um, people have a bad history. You know, maybe they were bullied and they were kind of shot down. They tend to um, sit in silence or not know how to kind of take a friendship or a relationship from, um, hi, how are you, to a full-blown conversation. And I've worked with many people where this was the issue. And so I wanted to come up with a way that I could, A, show that we kind of have to do this. We move through these stages. And then um, to give this to kids and families and and teens. And I've used this a ton with teenagers, by the way, um, because this is really a thing. Like, they have to be able to do this. So the, the number one thing is I often teach young people um, that sitting silent is way worse than saying something and it's, it's not perfect. Kids will say to me, well, I, I'm just going to sit here. Um, and I'm like, uh, no, because then people think you're creepy and weird. So the first thing is you say hi. You say something. It doesn't have to be perfect. The second thing is you think about how do you know them. So everybody has, like, circles of who you know and how you know them. Third, third thing is think about um, situation-based questions you can ask, right? Hey, I don't like French class either. How do you feel? Anything like that. Um, also, we want to think about how is this circumstance or how is this person similar or different to a conversation or a person you've encountered before? Because that can be sort of a cliff notes for, okay, I've had this kind of situation before. The other thing we want to think about is any shared experience you have. Is their locker next to yours? Um, are they in classes with you? Were they in classes before? Carolyn, I'd like to break from our conversation just for a minute to go back to some of the material that you have shared with us in Why Will No One Play With Me. You talk about processing styles, and you identify six uh, that are based on Howard Gardner's theory of multiple intelligence as well as other theories that dovetail with Gardner's. So the six processing styles that you identify are auditory, meaning music and sound, kinesthetic, meaning hands-on and physical movement, verbal, meaning spoken word, conceptual, meaning ideas, visual, which of course is sight, and tactile, which of course relates to touch. So the processing style questionnaire, which is one of many that you have in the book that is designed to help a parent on his or her own really make an assessment about what's going on with his or her child. So the processing style questionnaire, the PSQ as you call it, is a very simple questionnaire. Uh, It's got a three scale rating, seldom, sometimes, often. And you go through each of the processing styles and you ask the parent a few questions. And, And literally, I think it's like five or six questions. So you are able to determine if your child's best processing style is auditory, is conceptual, is kinesthetic, visual, verbal, or tactile. And once you score these on a three-part scale, you total the score, and then you've got uh, information about your child's 
dominant processing style. And again, with that information, you are able to understand how your child best learns, best hears things, best remembers. And that puts you so far ahead of the game. There are other uh, questionnaires that you make available for the parents. The Strengths Interest Matchmaker. The Strengths Interest Matchmaker helps you to determine what your child really loves to do. Is your child artistic and creative? Do they like designing and and inventing? Are they more musical, theatrical? Do they like building things, putting things together? Are they more scientific, more mathematical? Do they, are they achieving children? Are they entrepreneurial? Do they like to start new things? And do they like to be leaders? Do they like to teach? Do they like to learn? Once you've got the answers to these, again, it reminds you that there is no half-empty child, that every child is a glass half-full, and wouldn't it be a much better world to live in if we all recognize that not only about ourselves, but about our children. Caroline McGuire, author of Why Will No One Play With Me? The Play Better Plan to Help Children of All Ages Make Friends and Thrive. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing and for sharing your information with us today. Mind Talk is produced by Jim Brown and 26 by 2 Communications. Mind Talk is brought to you regularly as an educational public service, and it is not intended to replace any work that you might choose to do with a medical, mental health, or other professional. Mind Talk is available 24 7 on demand by going to mindtalk.org. That's M Y N D T A L K. If you'd like to be in touch with me directly, you can send an email to Pamela at mindtalk.org. And by the way, while you're at the MindTalk site, I want you to take a look around, see what else is there. You'll also get a list of the many venues on which you can pick MindTalk up. And if there's one that is your favorite that you don't see there, drop me an email. Again, that's Pamela at mindtalk.org. And we'll do everything we can to get MindTalk on that venue as well. With that, I will sign out and remind you once again, if it's unacceptable, it's unacceptable. You take care.